0: Thank you for tuning in to Avant Life's weekly podcast. We hope this message inspires you, stirs your faith, and leaves you blessed. Breathe in, breathe out, take a deep breath. God is here. He's waiting for us to open our ears, to soften our hearts, and to open our minds this morning. We're entering into a new series, Um, for those of you who are maybe catching up, last week Pastor Ben spoke to our two-year vision for uh, Avant Life Church, and um, we have this vision in front of us, and we're entering into a time where we need to be equipped by our great teacher, who is Jesus, with the things that we need to go and fulfil this vision, We're starting a series called The Upside-Down Kingdom. And to give you some understanding as what is this upside-down kingdom that we talk about, well, when Jesus came into the world, he came into two different worlds. He came into the Jewish world and into the Roman world. Now, the Jewish world was a world that lived by code of conduct. They lived by... uh, purity codes and making sure that they were uh, doing things according to what was righteous and what was uh, seen as being someone of righteousness, whereas the Roman world lived by this code of might and power, and they were conquerors. Um, and it's really interesting when we look at this world that Jesus was born into and came into and that he, he brought this counterculture message to, it's not really very different right now. It's very similar. We have a lot of uh, different types of people in this world, some who live by a certain codes and some who live by might and strength. And we have been given through our great teacher, Jesus, this counterculture message, this upside down kingdom that he comes and speaks to us about And it's quite interesting when we look into the gospel messages, each gospel kind of portrays this different image of Jesus because it's different authors expressing uh, the truth of Christ um, through different lenses. And in in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, it's often referred to as, as the teacher's gospel. And we're going to be turning to the book of Matthew today. We're going to be looking at as Christ uh, speaks on the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. And today we're going to be starting where Jesus started, and that is with the Beatitudes. Um, it 's really interesting this upside down kingdom message was was is found in jesus 's teachings, and we find a lot of it in this these passages but it 's this countercultural message straight from the mouth of Christ, which has a reversal of our value judgments. It, people believe that wealth and power and strength and money were a sign of god 's blessing and if you didn 't have those things, it was that the gods or God didn't approve of you, or he was cursing you, or he was disproving of you. And so we see this value system where where wealth and strength and power and might are the things that actually bring blessings. Yet isn't it interesting that how the world has continued to live by that, people still remain unhappy. People who live by this kingdom of man mentality, they still remain unhappy in their living. And Jesus takes all the tension that is in this hot pot of culture And he doesn't divide it, but he flips it upside down. See, for the Jewish people, they were hoping that Jesus would come and say, no, the Romans are the bad guys, let's get them. For the Romans, they actually didn't have any regard for Jesus. They just had a regard for might and power, and they wanted more of that. And so Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm actually flipping this story completely upside down. You need to understand that this is not a materialistic, physical thing that I'm talking about. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is not something that you are going to find in as tactile pieces. It's, it's not materialistic. And so as we get into this Sermon on the Mount, as we talk about some of the Beatitudes, there's, a lot, there, there's too many for me to cover today. Like Jesus's teachings oh my goodness. Okay. I love, you know, Christine Kane. I really like Stephen Furtick. I love this guy called Pastor Ben Naranen. He's especially my favorite. But can you imagine just being in the presence of Christ as he teaches? Like how joyful you would be? Like, Literally, you can listen to any podcast, jump on any type of YouTube channel, but to hear the voice of Christ speaking these principles, and we get to live it because of this Word. We get to live it because of this Word, and so we get to hear Jesus today. We get to listen to what He says through His, his Scriptures and found in Matthew 5. We're going to be starting there. Um, it's funny how Jesus in his teachings instilled language that even those who don't know the teacher know his teachings. Have you ever thought about that? Like, turn the other cheek. The world knows. Yeah, turn the other cheek. But do they know the teacher? And, and sheep and wolves' clothing. clothing. They, know the, they know the phrase. They know the lingo. But the world has tried forever to separate the teachings of Christ from the teacher Christ so that we would not have an experience and an encounter with him. And so we need to understand when we hear these words, we need to know who is speaking. And it is our great teacher. Who is he speaking to? So when we read this passage in Matthew 5, verse 1, um, verse 6, which is what we're going to be focusing on today, he says he went up on a mountain and he was seated and his disciples came to him. So Jesus is essentially teaching to his disciples. So who were the disciples? One, they were Jewish. And two, they were the ones that had chosen to follow him. So this message that Jesus preaches is to people who have accepted Him, have accepted Him and followed Him. It is for us today as believers to hear these words of Christ and to build on that rock of His teaching. And so we are all disciples of Christ. Will we let Him disciple us? will we? Because some of it's quite confronting. Some of it might actually turn your kingdom upside down a little bit. And we have to come to Jesus in humility, not willing to project our voice, but to hear His. And so let's turn to the Scriptures. If you've got your Bible, Matthew 5, verse 1 to 6, we're going to be focusing on four Beatitudes today. I'm excited. Here we go, Lord. And seeing the multitudes, He went up on a mountain, and when He was seated, So, what is a beatitude? Basically, they're blessing statements. They give you a, a characteristic and a blessing that is a promise of that characteristic. And it was actually quite common in literature back then to have this this term of beatitude. It's like this and blessing. And so Christ comes and he brings a very countercultural kingdom message when it comes to even the written word. See, back then it was very much a beatitude it was was found in literature. And Christ comes and he takes literature and in. In the way that he speaks about these principles, he flips literature upside down. Like, he's permeating every part of society and culture. And so these blessing statements are things that, are, that encourage the hearer and the reading. And what we actually find in them is that God wants us to be blessed, that God wants us to be happy. The word blessed actually is makrios in the Greek, and it means happy. It means happy. Wow, don't we all pursue happiness? The pursuit of happiness in this world is so prevalent we all are chasing happiness, and so Jesus is saying, "Hey, hey, you want the secret code to a happy life? Like you want to find pure happiness, You want this blessing? Then here are these characteristics. You need to understand these are characteristics. These are not personality types. These are not things of the natural. They're not these materialistic things. They're characteristic that Jesus is saying to whom, His followers. These are things that we all get to put on, that we all choose to actually say, I'm going to choose to put this on. Now, isn't it interesting how often we go, what's the promise? We're not going to focus on that today. We're going to focus on the characteristics because it's not in seeking the promise that we find the fulfillment of the promise. It's in seeking these characteristics that we actually see the promise come alive in our life. So these characteristics are the building blocks for us as believers. They are produced by grace and they're in the operation of the Holy Spirit. They are teachings that reveal that God wants us as His believers, as His followers, to have a good life, to have a happy life. They show the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. What it's not, it's, it's not a personality type. You don't get to go oh, I'm that and that and that and that. It's like whenever I would like watch TV shows with my siblings, like we'd watch say like Mary Poppins and we'd be like, I'm that one and I'm that one and I'm that one. You know how you like, you want to identify. We want to find our identity and go, that's me. But Jesus isn't saying, no, pick and choose. He's saying, this is the followers of me. You don't get to pick and choose. These are the things that I want you to put on because I want you to have the inheritance of these characteristics because I want you to understand the great gift of grace it is to follow me. And so here we go. This is it. It's not materialistic. Matthew was written primarily to Jewish people who the view of the Messiah was one of materialistic nature. The Messiah was coming to conquer Rome. They were sick of being under the oppression of the Roman authorities. And so the Messiah was someone who would come in with a fiery sword and cut down the empire. It's like Star Wars or something. I don't know. Like, I can just see it. Who would Jesus be? Who would I be? You know how you start picking? Princess Leia? No? Rey? I don't know. Chewbacca? (laughs) Settle down. (laughs) But it's not materialistic. Jesus actually turns it upside down by correcting first the materialistic mindset that we approach the kingdom of heaven in. Wow, don't we all do that? Even as followers, he's trying to correct this materialistic mindset of what it is to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Isn't it funny how he uses kingdom of heaven? You know, the different terms found in in the New Testament writings is kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Yet here in Matthew, we read kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he's trying to prove a point that it's not just this, I get to define God. No, heaven actually takes it from a I'm controlling God to a heavenly realm where they're like, well, how do we, how do we define heaven into our everyday context? They tried to do it with God time and time again. Jesus says, this is the kingdom of heaven. You don't understand. You don't get to touch and feel this in the physical sense. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees in Luke uh, chapter 17, he said, when is, when is the kingdom of God coming? This is how Jesus replied. The coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed. No, it's not materialistic. Jesus is saying these characteristics, these things that actually breathe the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, they're not materialistic. It's it's not something you can see. It's not something that can be observed or be taken in. It's It's not something that we can put on our Instagram. It's not something that we can just touch and feel all the time. He's saying, no, no, people will say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in our midst. Right now, it's in our midst. The kingdom of God is right now. It's right now. It's a pretty inc- incredible thing. The kingdom of God, that the, it is not a kingdom that comes to overthrow the religious by religious ritual, and it's not physical. We need to understand this as we approach these characteristics. We need to know this because that's the kingdom we belong to. That's the kingdom we belong to. We don't belong to a materialistic kingdom that pursues happiness as a means to an end. We belong to a heavenly kingdom because we are sons and daughters of that kingdom. Why do we need the Beatitudes? Easy. First verse in Matthew chapter five, and it says this, and seeing the multitudes, and seeing the multitudes, Jesus took his followers to teach them Jesus never lacked compassion. He saw the multitudes. He saw the desperate need and the desperate cry of this world that had this emptiness within them that they were trying to fill with everything else of the material value. And so, what does he do? He knew his time was coming. He knew that he would be crucified and that he would raise again and then he would rise rise on high. And so what he needed to do was to impart himself and impart kingdom principles so that it could be taken to the multitudes. This is our commission as followers of Jesus, that we would let ourselves be taught by him so that when we see the multitudes, we're not ill-equipped, but we are empowered by his very word. It's so interesting how even as a church, we're told that we need to become more attractive to the outside world. And how we've had this type of, we need to be more seeker-friendly. And and in the heart of what that seeker-friendly thing, the principle was, was one of evangelism and non-judgmentalism. So it was birthed out of a beautiful place, yet like everything that the enemy gets his hands into, it becomes distorted. And instead of being people that shine a light, we become people that are conformed and start instead reflecting the image of the world. We become a mirror to the world rather than a light on a hill. And so Jesus is telling us we need to make sure that we understand that there is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. When I was a budding teenager, I uh, surrounded by very, like you're always surrounded by different types of personalities, people, and they wear different clothes, look a certain way. And there was this one group of girls in my church, and they had bleach blonde hair, and they wore like bright pink billabong hoodie sweaters and um, like the big bell pants and stuff like that, lots of makeup, long nails, all of that. And I was like, oh, like that's not my vibe. Um, Might do it now, don't know, constantly changing. Um, (laughs) But I was like, I've got to be different. Like I need to be different. I'm different. And so, um, and my family was a little bit different. We were a little bit quirky and uh, (laughs) why are you laughing, Mark? Mark knows my family. Anyways, (laughs) we wore Doc Martens when they weren't cool. Okay. So that's what I wore. I you know what? I'm killing myself because I gave away like these really awesome Doc Martens when I was like 18 because they weren't cool anymore. And I'm like, now they're back in trend and they were like 250 bucks. Anyways, anyways, I needed to be different. I wanted to. I was this angsty teenage girl and I was like, actually I was a pretty well-behaved girl. I was like this teenage girl, but I needed to be different. And so me and my family would rock up to church in our Doc Martens and our all black and our big coats like we were from the Matrix and like our, our dyed hair and our black lipstick while well, my sister did that, not so much me. And we were like the weird family and we were different. But do you know what we, who we weren't different from? The rest of the try-hard goths in the world as much as we tried to establish that we were different, we still reflected a part of the world. We just decided I'm gonna go into this tribe or I'm gonna go into this tribe. We still weren't different. And isn't it funny how in church we do that? We gotta be different. So we gotta have like a different vibe and we've gotta like project a different image. And so that's what we do. Instead of actually realizing the difference in us is the fact that we belong to a heavenly kingdom. That's the difference. That's the thing that sets us apart. But we don't like doing that because it's a little bit too different. And that type of difference brings a little bit of oppression. And that type of difference feels a little bit lonely. Yet this is the kingdom we belong to. So if you want to be different, join the kingdom. It's good fun. It's really interesting because the light that is found in every single believer, and Jesus is speaking not just to some religious elite, right? He's speaking to everyone who said yes to him and is following him. That's not a position of office. That's not someone based upon how they were born into this world, the education that they had. This is based upon a choice to follow him and be discipled by him. So this is applicable to everyone who said yes to Jesus. This is applicable to us all. And the light is found in every single believer, not just the select few, not just for the conferences, not just for a certain type of office, not just for some believers, not just for the preachers, teachers and the worship leaders. It's for all of us. We belong to this kingdom. Every person who follows Jesus is the light in this dark world. As Ben quoted last week, Isaiah 61 to 3, this is our vision passage, guys. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Our brightness doesn't have anything to do with how cool we are as a church or cool we are as a people everything to do with the characteristics of God shining through us. You want to arise and advance and we need to be equipped with the teachings of Christ. If you all thought that we were coming to do like a government takeover, I'm real sorry. But I tell you what, God wants to do a heart takeover in us as believers so that we would actually not be a mirror of the world, but we would be a light unto the world. So that is how we arise, church. That is how we advance. Come on. Ready? That's just the intro. Um, Beatitude number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So in that time, those who were poor relied on the wealth of others for anything, for any type of blessing. The poor didn't inherit riches among the kingdom. It's such an oxymoron. The poor in spirit, they inherit. Why do they get to inherit That's not how society works. If you don't do anything, you don't get to inherit. And if you're poor, you obviously don't do anything. Ridiculous, isn't it? But don't we still sometimes have that mindset when we see those who are lowly? Because we can be their hero, baby. But we can't. We can't be their hero. And this is the problem. Jesus is actually saying, blessed are the ones that are poor in spirit. The poor were without honour. They lived in shame and they were in dependence on the wealthy. Wealth was seen as a blessing. Being poor was seen as something that diminished your value in society. Well, we don't do that. We're not, not in Vancouver. We're like, you know, we really care about justice and stuff. We do. Whether we express it in the way that Christ examples it or not. Maybe that's a question. Maybe in our heart, how we perceive someone of a lowly matter or of a lowly state as we walk past them and see them not looking and representing the way that we do just because they're not wearing cool dock mountains. Maybe we do judge them in our heart, yet do we declare blessing over the poor in spirit? Now, remember, this is not something that is wealth based. Jesus isn't saying. All those who don't have money, you get the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus isn't actually saying that poverty guarantees spirituality. It doesn't. Wealth or poverty doesn't, doesn't um, guarantee spirituality. But what he's actually saying is that for one to be filled, one must first be emptied. For you to be poor in spirit, for you to be completely lacking, you must be emptied so that you can be filled. Poor in spirit is one who has realized their complete and utter need to be emptied of themselves. That's our challenge. Jesus is saying, you need to be poor in spirit. I'm asking you to be poor. and Empty yourself of your self-reliance, of your pride Start emptying yourself of these things that you thought would actually bring you wealth and success because it's not doing that. It's not bringing you happiness. Empty yourself out so that I can actually fill you. This is not realized when we're face to face with man. This is realized when we are face to face with God. We don't, we don't understand the emptiness that we need to pour out of us. We don't understand that we need to empty ourselves when we're up against man. Why? Because I can judge myself up against that girl any day. Oh yeah, you're good at that? Well, I'm good at this. We do, we we compare. Try comparing yourself to the Creator. Face to face with God is where we find our need to be emptied of ourselves so that we can be filled by Him again. The enemy has tried to rob God out of us. It happened when the fall happened, when sin entered this world, where we were designed to be created in the image of God and to have God... As a part of our very fabric, of our very being, sin came and corrupted that. Yet we now have an opportunity through Jesus Christ, through the teachings he gives us, how to empty ourselves, to be poor in spirit, to realize that we are nothing but filthy rags on the side of God. Isaiah 64 6 says it, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And then further on, Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Why? Because he wasn't pairing himself up with all the other people in in Israel. He was pairing himself up against Christ. He was looking at himself next to Christ and realizing, Oh my goodness, I need you in my life. I need you in my life. I don't need that person in my life. They're not gonna fill me. They're not gonna satisfy this desire for happiness in my life. I need Christ in my life. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul has poured himself out completely for the sake of Christ He considers them garbage, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. This is what it is when Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is that we would empty ourselves so that he could fill us again. Poor in spirit is being completely aware of our desperate need for God as we look into the glory of God. The way to become poor in spirit is not looking at yourself. But at looking at him, there's a difference between a lack of self-worth and actually valuing our worth because of him. It causes us to empty ourselves out so that he can fill us again. For one to be filled, one must first be emptied. Church, we need to be poor in spirit. We need to empty ourselves every day. Every day. And let him fill us so that we can find the blessing and happiness that he so desires for us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, that just doesn't make sense. Happy are those who mourn. Upside down, right? Like, you're like, did Jesus just say that? Like, the disciples are like, I don't think you know what he said. Do you know why? Because mourning was actually a very sacred thing in that time. Like, did you know that in, in a time of mourning... Obviously there's no dancing, there's no celebrations, there's nothing that showed anything but anguish. And it was public anguish. It was the beating of the chest, it was the the sackcloth and the ashes. There was heaps of whalers, like like professional whalers. I'm I'm serious, professional whalers. If you feel like you're called to be a professional whaler, email Matt Gianarkis, I'm sure he's taking applications. There were professional whalers. Mourning was a big deal for the culture. Mourning was a huge deal. Why? Because death is a huge deal. Death was a huge deal. Death is a huge deal. This goes against all social norms. Isn't it funny how the church today still embraces the opposite? We try to cover up any type of mourning. Why? Because we have this fear that maybe our testimony in Christ isn't actually enough for people. So we try to hype it up by saying, yeah, life's good all the time. Blessings, life is good all the time, all the time. But we don't declare that life is good all the time. We declare that God is good all the time. That doesn't mean that we are void of mourning. Jesus himself wept. Jesus himself, if God can weep, so can we. That is not to mean that we remain there. The promise is that we'll be comforted, correct? But we have this fear that maybe Christ isn't enough Our testimony of Jesus isn't enough to the world to actually convince them that being a Christian is awesome. And so we try to cover it up with false joy, but false joy will always do a terrible job of masking mourning. In the spiritual sense, those who mourn are those who are aware of death or the death of something. In a spiritual sense, this is sin. For us to mourn, we have to have an understanding of sin. Did you realize? We don't like to say in that word. That's a naughty word. Sin is not something we like talking about in church. Why is that? Because it's actually in the, the acknowledgement that there is sin that we're able to then mourn and be comforted. If you deny that death has happened, how are you going to be comforted in something that you've denied? We need to actually realize that sin is a very real thing. We don't have to be captive by it. We aren't. That's why we've said yes to Jesus, so that we'd be free from it. But we actually need to understand that for us to be first comforted, we need to be convicted first. For us to be comforted, first comes conviction. So many people actually never receive the happiness of being comforted because we don't want to face the conviction of sin that makes us mourn. Sin should make us mourn. The world wants joy without conviction. Of sin because they are unwilling to realize their need to be emptied because of their great need for God and then be filled with His Spirit. This is the thing once we've been emptied, once we realize our great need for God, we are so aware of our sin. But we don't like talking about sin. We don't like showing any type of vulnerability in this world that maybe we don't have it all together because we got to create this picture perfect thing. A true sense of sin must come before there can be any true joy of salvation. The world wants joy without conviction. Those who deny their need for God are actually denying their joy. Isn't that insane? When you mourn because of sin, you mourn not only on behalf of yourself, but on behalf of humanity's divide with God. Sin is not something that just affects, affects the individual. It's affected this whole entire world. Someone who mourns is aware of death, death in their own life, sin in their own life, and death in the world. That should make us mourn. It made Christ mourn. Christ was broken-hearted for this world that He gave up His very life for it. His mourning actually led to an action that brought redemption, that brought comfort for us. We are comforted by the fact that sin was not erased by anything we did, but by Christ alone. You know, and a person who mourns over their own sinfulness is actually the one who is in the best position for repentance. You can't repent if you're not aware. You can't repent if you're not convicted. Repentance means reconnection with God. If you have sin in your life, if you have something that's separating you from God, would you not want to remove that thing so that you can have connection back with God? When we mourn, we acknowledge our sin. Mourning is due to the conviction of our own sin that leads us to a place of repentance and therefore gives us comfort in the joy of our salvation because of the one who redeems us. That is here and now. And it is also in the glory to come. We read in Revelations 21 that He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Our comfort is here now and to come. We must acknowledge, we must be convicted of the fact that death is a real thing, that sin is a real thing. And in that place of conviction, find repentance. See, God doesn't want you to just remain in conviction. If you remain in conviction, you breed guilt. Yet when you come out of conviction to a place of repentance and you empty yourself out, you're then being able to be filled by him again. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, inheriting the nations, let alone the earth, was for the military conquerors. It would have been for Rome, right? Like they like, had been reigning strong. They were the ones that they knew they were in charge because of conquest. Um, it instilled in the minds of those in Israel what was the thought that the strong and mighty inherited by asserted power. Because Rome asserted their power. The military might asserts their power. The world says that the more you assert yourself and express yourself, strength, and your strength, then you'll succeed. Then you'll be happy. This is not what Jesus was like, nor is his kingdom like this. Christ instead took that strength that he had by his very nature, and instead it was strength under control. To be meek is to have strength under control. In Philippians 2, we read about it. This is Christ's example who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That is strength under control, not for the purposes of own advantage, but for the purposes of others. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Strength under control. The question is, whose control? The question that we constantly need to ask ourselves when we evaluate our strength, when we evaluate this power that we have, do we, that we might have the ability to assert it, but we decide to bring it under control, whose control are we bringing it under? To be meek is to be surrendered to the will of God, just as Christ surrendered to the will of God. In a way that does not try to assert your strength, but to have it submit to God's kingdom. Because in that, that's where freedom came. That's where salvation came. The world control, the way the world controls is very controlling. It's, it's trying to keep everyone in check. And there's this sense of I'll never experience freedom. Whereas God's will always brings freedom. It did with Christ. Why would it not with you? Why do we fear? having our strength under God. Maybe it's because we have a mindset that God is controlling. Have we thought about that? Do you think that God is controlling? Yet by submitting, under, by submitting His strength under God's will, Jesus, the product was freedom. Jesus brought freedom. It didn't bring a controlling of freedom. It brought freedom. So we must understand that God's character has been proved through Jesus Christ. It's been proved through our Lord and Saviour that it will bring freedom. Psalm 118, verse 14, we read how David says this, the Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. Yet David was a mighty man. Like he killed a whole bunch of people. He was really strong. He was a warrior. Yet he says, the Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. He was a meek man. He knew his might was not his strength. Meekness is essentially a true view of yourself. It's, it's actually knowing yourself truly. It's expressing it in an attitude and conducting it with respect to others. When you are meek, you know who you truly are. You have a, a great understanding of your value and of your view. It's my attitude towards myself and it's a sp- an expression of that in my relationship to others. How often we forget the latter of that statement. It is the view of oneself that you have more than you deserve. And in that, the meek have already inherited the earth. Because in this life, we are always satisfied and content with what we have. The meek, when you are meek, you instantly inherit everything that you ever need in this earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Purity codes were a set of practical tasks that the Jewish people would do to attain purity or righteousness. It showed to the outside world that they were different, that they were set apart, and it spoke to their identity. Yet here we find that this righteousness that Jesus teaches about is not one that we attain. It's not one that we can achieve. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. It's not something that's within us. It's something that we crave. It's something that we seek after. There is no code given as to what you can do to earn righteousness. Righteousness speaks to a covenant with God. Righteousness gives us the solution to our own empty sinful lowly selves by changing our view of looking inwards to looking upwards. Righteousness has nothing to do with me. It doesn't begin with me and it doesn't end with me. It cannot be found in searching oneself That's why we hunger and thirst for it, because it's not something that's within us. It's something that has been laid out before us. It is deliverance from ourself, from our flesh. The world hungers and thirsts after happiness and blessing, and they crave it and pursue it as a means to an end. And it's like a doctor who's just trying to relieve pain, but not actually curing the disease. Yet we come back to it every time because we haven't come to the root problem which is that we need to submit under Christ's righteousness. The world tries to ease the pain of a lack of happiness by pursuing everything contrary to righteousness yet still finds itself in misery. The church in itself, we have been susceptible of chasing religious happiness Filling our tank with things that are not righteousness, but instead pursuing conference after album release, after guest speakers, after books. Those are all gifts. They're not bad things, but they are not our righteousness. They are not the things that bring us righteousness and they will not be the things that satisfy us. Because there is this need for us to once we have received the righteousness of Christ by receiving salvation from Him, that we need to understand that righteousness is alive. It's a living thing that happens as we continue to follow in the footsteps of Christ and pursue relationship with God. How many people in this world are not happy, including Christians? Could it be because we are treating the pain of sin rather than not treating sin itself by pursuing righteousness? Righteousness is received. It's not something we attain. It's something we receive freely. It's something that we should hunger and thirst for, that we should crave to be a part of the light that shines out within us. When we enter into a life of discipleship under Christ, where we allow God's work in us to make us more godly and Christ-like, it means that we're pursuing this righteousness. This is how God intended us to be. That's how He designed us to be. But righteousness never began with us. We are not the core of righteousness. We are not its starting place. But we get to benefit along the journey that we receive righteousness in. Our witness to Christ's righteousness is in us. is because of the saving work of God of salvation in us today. That is our testimony. That is our witness to Christ's righteousness. That we would continue to walk in righteousness by continuing to follow Christ's steps, by continuing to pursue a life of relationship with God. We do that by looking at Him. We don't do that by looking at ourselves. Jesus doesn't say pursue happiness, pursue blessing. We're going to enter into a time of worship again, church. And as Christ constantly flips our worldview upside down, He doesn't leave us feeling empty. He fills us. He doesn't leave us feeling mournful. He comforts us. He fills us. We are not left in a state where there's no hope. Our hope in Him is what drives us to that blessing, that happiness. Why don't you stand wherever you are? The difference between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God is that we don't celebrate us. We celebrate Him. We need to realign ourselves so that we can arise to show the world who we are. We are people that celebrate Him. We praise Him. We don't keep looking inward and stay inward. We let Him fill us and from that place we arise and advance because God has called us to shine a light into this world. I leave you with this in 1 Corinthians 1, 28, 31. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us Wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Come on, let's worship. We hope you enjoyed this message. We would love you to subscribe to our weekly podcast. Other ways you can connect with Avant Life is through YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Check out our website at avantlifechurch.com.